Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. This is Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families with your host, Wayne France. Brought to you by Family Care Center, offering behavioral health services for both children and adults and specializing in services for military families and veterans. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. Now, here's Dwayne France. Hello, and welcome to Inside the Military Mind. My name is Dwayne France, and each week we'll be talking about mental health and wellness for the military-affiliated population. Coming up in today's guest segment, I'll be having a conversation with licensed professional counselor and behavioral health manager for Silver Key, Layla Hernandez. After that, I'll be sharing the Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week, The Resource Exchange, an organization that partners with children and adults who have a variety of disabilities, delays, mental health, or long-term care needs. On this week's Insight segment of the show, I'll be talking about a couple of different groups of service members and how they may often be overlooked when it comes to mental health and wellness. I often refer to these veterans as forgotten veterans. When we talk about forgotten veterans, we may think of those who served in the Korean War. Many veterans of that conflict feel as though they got lost between the World War II generation and the Vietnam veterans. I once had the honor of working with Sergeant Major Retired Raymond Moran, a veteran of the Korean War, as well as a combat tour in Vietnam and service at Dover Air Force Base after returning to active duty during the Gulf War. An amazing man. Sometimes when we think about forgotten veterans, we might also think about those Gulf War veterans, many of whom were my leaders when I first joined the Army in 1992. Similar to the Korean War, these veterans sometimes feel as though they got lost between the Vietnam veterans and post-9-11 veterans. Their war, while short, was as brutal as any combat ever was. No, when I talk about forgotten veterans, I'm referring to the rest of them. What about the Navy veteran who served on a submarine for a few years in the mid-90s? Is he any less of a veteran than the electronic warfare officer who provided counter-IED support to convoys in Baghdad? Or how about the Marine who enlisted for six years in the late 80s? Is he any less of a devil dog than the boys and girls who hit the ground running in Helmand Province in Fallujah? One group of forgotten veterans that I'm talking about are non-combat veterans. Those veterans that served between Vietnam and the Gulf War are often called Cold War vets for their service in Korea and Europe, preparing for the potential of World War III. My first duty station in Mannheim, Germany, was populated by these men and women who could recall stories of the Berlin Wall and the Fulda Gap. Maybe the most action they saw was at a bar downtown, but that didn't change the fact that they served. For many of these veterans, their service was honorable, and it was through no fault of their own that there were no wars to deploy to. Now I hear you. You say, wait a minute. It's not that we don't respect those veterans, but combat is dangerous, right? It's not our fault that they didn't get a war. I hear you, and if you're like me, you wouldn't wish war on anybody. I subscribe to Thomas Paine's quote, If there be trouble, let it be in my day so that my children may have peace. So they didn't have trouble because their fathers fought in Vietnam. But it doesn't mean that their service was any less dangerous. As I referred to in my upcoming conversation with Layla, a service member was more likely to die in 1980 than in 2010. 
According to a 2015 Congressional Research Service report, the total number of U.S. active military deaths in 1980 was 2,392. The total number of U.S. active military deaths in 2010 was 1,485. This was when there was no conflict in 1980 and two wars in 2010. The advances in medical treatment and changes in combat casualty care certainly made a difference between these two numbers. There were veterans who endured exposure to significant trauma without being in active combat. I've met Air Force veterans who were on the scene within days of the Kobar Tower bombings and had to help recover the remains of their brothers and sisters. I've met Coast Guardsmen whose job it was to recover the remains of citizens who jumped from their death from bridges. Have you ever talked to a veteran who responded to New Orleans in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina? Just that level of devastation alone occurring on our own soil sticks with you. There's another type of forgotten veteran, though. This type of veteran stretches across all service and all conflicts. These are the veterans with bad paper. There are times when an individual enlists in the military but are unwilling or unable to conform to the rules and norms of that service and are discharged before their scheduled end of term of service. In the Army, we call it getting chaptered, referring to the specific chapters of a regulation that covers enlisted administrative separations. The soldier typically, in my day, has to have several serious violations before being administratively discharged. There have been times when I, as a leader, had soldiers who were discharged for various reasons. Multiple times drunk on duty, gang activity, recurring urinalysis failures. The causes for inappropriate behavior in 1995, however, were very different than the causes for inappropriate behavior in 2005 or 2015. Combat does have an impact on individuals. There is no doubt about that. What veterans see and do when they go off to combat or even serve in the military has a significant impact on their mental health, even more so if the trauma was intense and the veteran was young. When a veteran serves two tours of duty in the Argandab Valley and then returns home to get a DUI, there's a reason for it, and it's not because the service member is a dirtbag. It's sometimes because they haven't learned or used tools to cope with the trauma they experienced. Typically, however, this veteran is chaptered out. If they're lucky, they receive a general under honorable conditions characterization at discharge, which means that they will be eligible for some of their benefits. If that characterization is under other than honorable conditions, however, or even worse, characterized as a bad conduct discharge, they're cut loose entirely. No benefits with the Department of Veterans Affairs, no GI Bill, nothing. Even if they serve 15 years honorably and stepped on their feet in a big way at the end, they still get nothing. Zero. Rajiv Ramshan, a senior behavioral and social scientist at the RAND Corporation, indicates that the veterans with bad paper are those at the greatest risk of suicide. Paradoxically, this is the same group that has the fewest services available to them. Not only are these veterans denied services from the Department of Veterans Affairs, but RAND research has showed that many nonprofits serving veterans and their families will apply the same eligibility criteria to determining who they serve. A third type of forgotten veteran? the reservist or National Guardsmen. The challenges that they face, both during and after their service, are enough for an entire show of their own. They're a critical component to success in the military, yet often fail to receive the same support as those in active service. There's danger in splitting categories of those who can be considered veterans between those who have seen combat and those who have not, between those who have received an honorable discharge and those who have not, those who are on active duty and those who are not. Where does the division end? Do we become a poorly linked group of small, special entities instead of recognizing that the things that unite us are much more common than the things that divide us? 
The cracks that a veteran can fall through are numerous and wide. Caring for veterans, regardless of era of service or type of discharge, is my passion, and I hope that it's yours. So I'm glad to be able to share some of these insights. Agree? Disagree? It'd be great to hear your thoughts. Share them with us by dropping an email to militarymind at FCCSprings.com. Coming up in today's interview segment, I have a conversation with Layla Hernandez, Behavioral Health Manager for Silver Key, a local organization that serves in partnership with stakeholders to support a healthy quality of life for seniors, allowing them to age safely with dignity and dependence. Layla ensures integrated care among all Silver Key programs with and on behalf of behavioral health care clients. She is responsible for supporting and coordinating the behavioral health care of Silver Key clients to include clinical supervision and administration. Let's get into my conversation with Layla and come back afterwards to hear about this week's Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week. As a mental health professional that's worked with a wide variety of clients in our community, I'm always interested in hearing about how people got started in the field. I'm especially interested in your passion for service members, veterans, and the families. Uh, you are a military family member yourself. I consider your father, Leo Martinez, a mentor, as many of us do here in the community. So what got you into mental health and, and really your passion? for service members and veterans? So obviously my passion for service members and veterans comes from the fact that I was raised an army brat, wonderful life, I think. Um, my dad was obviously infantry, spent 22 years in the United States Army and retired out of Fort Carson. But my uncle was also in the infantry and he retired maybe 15 or so years ago himself from Fort Bliss. So we've always had that connection to the military. And I actually moved into mental health because I was working with the Department of Defense in their sexual assault programs and found that there was a huge disconnect for individuals who are going through those services and the type of mental health care that they could receive, especially if they were transitioning out of the service because of the sexual assault. Mm. So it really pulled me into the mental health field. And then Silver Key has just been kind of the best place for me because I get to work with people from the populations that I love, senior citizens, but also the military members and their families. And it's a really great tie. Oh, that's pretty great. I, I started out sort of in the same thing working in the homeless veteran space, but saw the yeah. same thing that we could do a lot of things for them, mm -hmm. but the underlying issues was really mental health concerns, Absolutely. and there wasn't a lot of resources for that. There just are not. And one of the nice things about Silver Key is we have some grant uh, funding that allows us to provide services to individuals who may not be covered by insurance. So they don't have to have Medicaid. They don't have to have, you know, a third party insurer paying for their services. We have grant funds that can help cover that gap. So they can still get the services that they need without having to worry so much about how they're going to cover the cost. Cost is very prohibitive with mental health in a lot of cases. Even with insurances, sometimes there's a deductible. And if you're living paycheck to paycheck or moment to moment, you can't always afford that. The hope is that with the grant funding and as we get a little bit more connected to and paneled with different insurers, we'll be able to close some of those gaps. And I think those that really speaks to a lot of the barriers that exist, right, Absolutely. to people reaching out for behavioral health services. As you mentioned, um, those who experience sexual assault, as they transition out, there's mm -hmm. a big gap between maybe what the DOD can provide mm -hmm. and if they are eligible for the VA um, that, that 
just overcoming those barriers can be challenging. It is such a huge barrier, and I think it's one of the least publicized of all of the medical barriers that are out there, right? We talk about people who can't connect to insurance. We talk about people who may not be able to connect to adequate medical services, but we don't always talk about, are there enough providers for these individuals who need the mental health? Um, Medicaid has made some changes. Some providers have dropped off. So there aren't a lot of options there. There aren't a lot of options for people if they aren't comfortable going to the VA because there's usually a cost that's associated with it. So any individual who who can come to Silver Key and receive services can get those services through us. And that's one of the things that I just love about this program. And hopefully we're meeting some of those gaps. I think that's that idea of the provider shortage, right? You really have to uh, have a, a, a want to get involved in this. As you said, you saw a need. I, I had the, the same exact thing got me into the mental health space as when a, a colleague of ours said there's not enough veterans in the mental health space. Um, what is it about that provider shortage? Why do you think there is such a challenge for, um, for individuals, mm-hmm. in military-related or not, to become mental health professionals? Um, I think for the military specifically, there's a gap because of the lack of knowledge of what being a veteran means. And there are instances where people are leaving the military and they've seen some horrendous things. And that's not something that everybody is equipped to deal with. That's not something everybody wants to have to deal with. And so when we're looking at provider shortages, we're not just talking about there aren't enough providers. It's there aren't enough providers with that specialized education and certification who can actually understand and connect with the people who need the services. You know as well as I do, it's a relationship. And just like any relationship, if there are huge gaps in communication because you don't know or can't connect with an experience, then that person's not going to be compelled to continue in treatment. And that means they're going out there without enough resources or coping skills to manage the things that are happening for them. So that, I think, is the biggest thing. When I'm talking provider shortages, I'm not just talking about not enough Medicaid providers, which is true. I'm talking about not enough people who have that knowledge of what these individuals are facing and how to maybe help them navigate through that. Um, Silver Key is trying to um, connect with these communities in a a much different way. We're offering companionship services through the VETS program. I know you've talked to Robert in the past, um, so that veterans who need somebody who can just come into their home and talk to them, and not even for mental health purposes, but just for companionship, Mm -hmm. can have that. Uh, We have the Reassurance Plus program where we're kind of combining our meals on wheels and our companionship so that these individuals have somebody who brings them a meal and sits with them and talks to them and just helps prevent some of that isolation, especially since the pandemic and the restrictions and, and all of that stuff. It's impacted our elder community at a I think a much higher rate. And if you're talking about things like veterans who have all these other issues that are going on, that isolation can be just terribly damaging for them. Um, And trying to make sure that we're navigating through all of those and treating the whole person and not just this one diagnosis or this one need. You know, sure, Meals on Wheels is wonderful and they serve so many people, but if you can connect that with a companion 
preferably, you know, like for a veteran, somebody who's had military right. experience, mm-hmm. who can go in and have and talk about those war stories. Um, just make that connection with them as a human being. I think that's really important. And I think there's that measure of trust, and that's what you're yes. talking about is, um, and, and we've talked about it in the show before, you don't have to be a veteran to be a mental health professional for veteran, even mm-hmm. a military family member like you are. And there's actually nothing wrong with a provider who feels as though they don't wanna work with veterans or they don't, I mean, there's mm-hmm. that's okay. Uh, I remember early on in my training, um, one of my supervisors said, I have a 16 year old that I wanna work you, have you work with. I was like, no. I, <laughs> <laughs> Give me a three-tour combat vet all day long. I will. I've got two teenagers at home. I don't want to be, and and so that wasn't my space, right? That wasn't what I was comfortable with, um, and and even like you said, that specialized training, but especially in mental health trust factor and being able to understand that the person understands me, mm-hmm. that's significant for a lot of veterans. Well, and that's I think the key, right? It's it's just that. I'm not floating out here. I don't have somebody who is able to help me maybe manage depression or anxiety, but doesn't understand why my military experience ties in so closely to that depression or anxiety. Um, you know, we got to stick to our lane. So if you don't, if you don't have the experience or you don't want to work with that population, I agree. Please don't. But on the other side of that, um, I think that there are a lot of people who think it's not that big of a deal. Or if you have a veteran, who, you know, a 70-year-old veteran who has been out of combat for a significant period of time, well, then it shouldn't really be impacting them at this point. And, and knowing that that's not just, it's not just a career, it's not just an experience. I mean, for military members, it's a way of life. For their family members, it's a way of life. And that carries over into retirement. It carries over into everything that they do. You know, um, you know my dad. He still does his PT every day. And and it's not because he still thinks he's in the Army. It's because that's just part of the lifestyle that he became accustomed to. And if we don't take those things into account as clinicians and we're not taking that um, extra step to understand that connection, then we're really doing them a disservice. And I think it's especially true for older veterans. Um, some of the reasons why older veterans may be struggling are different than younger mm-hmm. veterans. Trust factor, especially. We talk about post-Vietnam veterans. Yes. Um, establishing this trust is significant. And you've mentioned uh, Silver Key a couple of times. And your role as manager of behavioral health services for Silver Key, you do support specifically older veterans with mental health and wellness. Yes. What are some of the behavioral health-specific programs? You'd mentioned the veterans in... Mm-hmm. Uh, partnership programs and things like that. But what are some of the uh, behavioral health specific programs, maybe not military and veteran specific, Mm -hmm. but general behavioral health that you're providing for Silver Key? So we have um, taken the whole person approach to our behavioral health programs. So we have several resources that are available. We have resource navigators that can help an individual who may be having issues paying their utilities, um, who may have food insecurity, who may be struggling with transportation issues, or anything along those lines. We can connect them to the right resources either within our organization, because Silver Key provides transportation and meals and a food pantry. we, we provide application assistance or outside of our organization, right? Connecting them with the right place that might be able to help them. We have case managers who are providing um, 
a more thorough and kind of involved approach. So we may have individuals who have trouble navigating systems and it becomes very complicated for them. So the case managers can actually go to the appointments with them, help them understand what the doctors are saying, help them apply that to where their needs are, what resources have they been asking for, where are the, what are the things that we're doing for them outside of that, that medical appointment that might be connected to the medical issue that they're addressing. And then of course tying that into the clinical help. You can get behavioral health services. Um, we do a variety of different methods because of our population. So we can do them by phone. For some people who are housebound, we can do home visits. So we have a lot of individuals who can't leave their homes. They need that one-on-one -on -one connection um, for therapy, or they just don't have access to telephone or internet services to do it by video. Um, we can do them by video, and we can do them in our office. And we can also help arrange transportation through Silver Key to get them to and from their appointments so they don't have to stress as much about how they're going to make it um, to one appointment or to get the, their things done. We try to coordinate so that if they have a commodities pickup, we can try to get some of their other appointments done at the same time so it makes it a little bit easier for them, and there's less chance that they're going to get frustrated with the processes or that they're going to forget about the appointments and then maybe not follow through in treatment. So we try really hard to encourage them in all the ways that we can um, to stay healthy as a whole person, not just physically, but also mentally. And the hope is that we can help them age in place then so they can maintain their independence for as long as possible. And I think as I'm, as I'm hearing you say that, I'm hearing... Um, some emotional concerns of yes. the frustration. You specifically said frustration um, or anxiety around not being able to navigate these systems. Mm -hmm. Depression in that I should be able to do this on my own. I used to be able to do mm -hmm. this on my own. Forgetting that comes with shame, right? So all of these things, um, especially for our older population, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of this stuff has moved online. A lot of this stuff is moving at a, at a, a very quick technological yes. pace. Uh, not all older veterans. I think my father was on Facebook Facebook before I was, right? <laughs> but but still, it's a matter of being, it, it, it's not just dealing with the depression or, or PTSD from mm -hmm. things that happened 50 years ago. It's what's happening today that can cause a lot of this distress, yeah. which causes more problems from what happened 50 years ago. Well, and absolutely. So you're talking about people who have um, done tremendous things throughout their life and now feel a little bit less capable. And that's terribly distressing. You have managed to raise families and, and have a military career and then probably go on to a second or even a third career um, after that. And, and now trying to arrange for a ride to a doctor's appointment becomes overwhelming. Those are things that I think we don't take into account. Um, especially because we have so much technology at our fingertips these days. And we don't recognize a lot of people don't know how to use it or don't care to learn. Mm -hmm. um, that's a very real thing too for the, for the older population. I'm just not gonna get on Facebook because I don't need to. I don't need to have a smartphone. I have clients who still have flip phones. And that's okay. That's what they're comfortable with. But then that limits them too. It limits them um, in their ability to access some of the things that the rest of us kind of take for granted. I think the other thing also, or the opposite also happens in that 
Um, I've had some older veterans that do access social media, but it's bringing up things from the past, mm-hmm. right? They're on, I'm talking Vietnam veteran. Yeah. They're, they're reconnecting with buddies that they haven't seen in decades, but now that's bringing up things that they haven't dealt with in decades. Absolutely. And I've worked with a couple of, of veterans through Silver Key who have come in because they had, they had military-related trauma but never addressed it now it's coming up and they don't want to go to the va they don't because they don't really want to connect with that veteran community in that way because of their trauma and so trying to make sure that you're managing that for them as well can be really difficult i think that that we have two extremes in the veteran community right those who just totally disengage from anything having to do with the military because they had some negative experiences and those who um, really took it in internalized it and it became a part of who they are and in either case when you're dealing with something that you haven't looked at for 40 or 50 years and all of a sudden it's at the forefront of your mind you're having nightmares again you're doing you're having all of these symptoms and you're being triggered it gets very frustrating and overwhelming. It makes people feel broken. And I think that for me, that's the worst part is having somebody come in and say, it's been this long, you know, what's wrong with me that now this is coming up again? And, and it's walking them through the process of, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just the way your mind works. But not them not even having that connection because it's never been something they've had to deal with before is, it's watching them kind of learn from scratch. It's hand, holding their hand and walking them through it and hoping that they're willing to continue the ride because it gets so overwhelming. I think this is something that a lot of people aren't very familiar with, uh, the concept of late onset PTSD, which is what yes. we're talking about here in, in studies. And for listeners, I'll, I'll briefly explain. Studies indicated in the late 1990s that Holocaust survivors were starting to experience post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and, and these were Holocaust survivors mm-hmm. who survived the camps, built the families, had the careers. But in their 70s and 80s, they started identifying um, the, the the flashbacks and the depression and the nightmares um, because of age, the, na- the natural degeneration of our brain, um, because of a loss of support. And this is the thing you're talking about is all of my friends and people that knew me um, are, have passed on. Um, but then also just um, I have more time on my hands. I've retired. I've retired for my second or third. So really specifically late onset PTSD, somebody can have 20, 30 years of productive community life, um, but then come in and experience these things late in life and it can hit them out of nowhere almost. And and not being able to make the connections, you know? Sometimes when you're talking, when I'm talking to a client, I'll say something and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, I've been doing that my whole life, but it was never intrusive before. It never, it was never an issue before. Now it is. And kind of walking them through those processes helps them see that where their own resilience is. And that's so important in moving through that. That late onset PTSD, it's something most people don't ever think about, right? You either have it or you don't. You have a traumatic experience, you either suffer from it or you don't. And we don't necessarily pay a lot of attention to, well, your brain's gonna process it when it's ready or when it has time, or when you've lost some support networks. And 
that can be very devastating in addition to all of the other things that are happening in your life at that point. And even when related to memory care, right? We always joke that I remember what I did seven years ago, but I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. And and, and while that can be an amusing way to say it, but what about those things that happened 20, 30 years ago were traumatic? Mm-hmm. And those are the memories that you have versus what happened, what I was yeah. doing yesterday at lunchtime. Well, and and it's it seems to me that that's... We don't necessarily give as much honor and respect to our older adults as we should. And so there is a tendency, even by family members, to kind of go, you're just getting old, right? You're just getting old, and it's not that big of a deal. Or there's, And so how do you deal with that on top of everything? I'm having now all these memories coming up that I didn't have you know, 10 years ago, they weren't really there for me 10 years ago. And now my family members are saying, you're just getting old and senile, and you kind of have to suck it up and deal with it. And there's also a huge, huge, huge stigma attached to mental health and mental health services for military members and veterans. Mm -hmm. It's even larger for those who, you know, Vietnam era, you just didn't talk about it. And so now, what, at 70, 80 years old, we're telling you, no, you can go ahead and talk about it. And you're just supposed to know where to go for resources, how to get that process started, feel comfortable enough to engage. And, oh, by the way, not really have a whole lot of family support for that mental health service because they think you're just getting old and should be dealing with this age issue versus the trauma issue. Yeah, no, I think that's that's absolutely correct. Uh, you're listening to Inside the Military Mind with my guest, Layla Hernandez of Silver Key Behavioral Health Services. And we've just been talking about the need for behavioral health services for older veterans. Um, there's not a Vietnam veteran younger than 65, and most that experience the height of that conflict between 67 and 69 are well into their 70s. Then, of course, you have Cold War veterans. The oldest Gulf War veterans are emerging to that age group as well. Besides just that that late onset PTSD, what have you seen are some of the unique behavioral health needs when working with older veterans? Um, The loss of community. So the military, at least the army, in what I remember from my childhood and, you know, talking to some of my dad's soldiers who he still isn't, you know, connected with, is it was a family. This was your whole world, right? Your, your soldiers, their families, their children, you did things together, you had you went to softball games, you had all these other things. And that sense of community, obviously it diminishes as you get old, older anyway, because people pass, things change. But to lose that sense of community, just in that specific regard, not really being able to connect with a lot of other veterans from your age range, because there aren't a whole lot left in your particular area um even just the idea that some of the contributions that you made during your military career are no longer significant in the current community that you're living in those things have been very big um 
One of the things that the older veterans love to do, and, and I'm good with it because I love this part of it, is is tell the war stories, right? And and by war stories, I don't mean combat necessarily. I'm talking about this is what happened in boot camp. This is, or this is this one really funny experience that I had um, with my company at some training. Um, there aren't people that they can do that with a whole lot who understand the significance. And that, I think, is very impactful for them. And I think especially, and, and, and I think this is true for all eras of, of veterans, but um, that connection can be replaced easily um, if the connection is made. I, I recall mm-hmm. uh, as a young man, my father, three of his brothers were all in Vietnam, went to my cousin's house, my uncle, and there was this this guy, gray-haired guy, had a ponytail, and they were just kicking back, and him and my uncle, and I'd never seen him before. We, we spent a lot of time over there. And I asked one of my cousins, I was like, who is that? And he said, that's one of his Vietnam buddies. And I was like, well, where's he been? I, I you know, I haven't seen him. I said, he hasn't been around for 15 years. But yet it's like no time passed for them. Uh, and they were they were back there. And again, this is this was even, I think, in the 80s or the 90s. And as as those veterans age, those friends are no longer able to sit on the porch with them. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if you ever talked to my dad about his war dog reunions, but um you know, way back when they had these these company cohorts, and a few years ago he reconnected through me on Facebook because he refuses to use Facebook. Um, He's one of the flip phone guys. He is one of the flip phone guys, and and they started doing these war dog reunions. So last year was the first year, I think. I think we'd had five or six of them, and then last year we couldn't because of the pandemic. Um, this year I don't know if we're going to be able to pull it together, but making those connections again like you said and just being able to tell those stories and every year for an entire weekend then we get the pleasure of hearing the exact same stories over and over and over again um exaggerated to their fullest that connection right just knowing that he was important in those young men's lives and as their first sergeant was able to influence them and I tell them all the time, you know, at the end of the weekend, this is his nirvana. This is his this is his heaven. This is his his sacred space because these are the people who know him. And they know him in a way that his daughters don't know him. They know him in a way that his siblings don't know him because they shared so many very unique experiences. And I think that's true for a lot of veterans. Um, if there are those connections, but then we also have those issues, I think, where these things have been needing to be dealt with for many years and weren't, um, or were dealt with in ways that maybe weren't helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I see this a lot with my older veterans is is trying for years, um, you know, putting something up the nose or down, you know, down their throat. Substance use concerns yes. for, for long term to be able to cope with some of these things is significant mm-hmm. in a lot of older veterans. Absolutely. Um, it's that self-medication, right? It's the escape. And for a lot of them that that late onset PTSD, some of it is late onset because they've been numb for so many years, right? They've been using these substances to cover up all the symptoms. They're not really addressing any, they don't even recognize their trauma anymore. And trying to get them to a place where they feel comfortable enough, not just to address the trauma, but then also to distance themselves from the substance use is far more complicated, I think, than in a lot of other populations. And it's because 
you have to get them to address the trauma. And they don't necessarily want to. Um, and then when they do, I think, I think that there's also a concern for a lot of older veterans that if they address that there was trauma in their life, you know, combat trauma, whatever, that it somehow minimizes their military experience. Mm-hmm. That it wasn't as wonderful or as important or as significant. And that's a scary thing. Keeping, keeping their ties to their memories while trying to root out the negative causes of some of those behaviors. Now, I think that is significant. Going back to your your comment of the spectrum of veterans, um, and, and it, it's true. My father was the one that that absolutely denied. Like I never, I knew he was in Vietnam. I never knew until towards the the end of his life when he passed away, where or what he did. Right? He he absolutely refused to talk about. My his his second youngest brother, um, he lives on a mountaintop in Missouri. He'll tell you every story the entire time today, right? He's still almost literally in Saigon in his mind, um, and and I could see that yeah. that if I if he were to address that the the hard things that would mm-hmm. take all of the value about something that that really is his core identity, and and that's where I think the veteran population is so complex, because you know they join the military and they are for lack of a better term, and this may not be the right one, but kind of indoctrinated, right, into the or military, yeah, into the military culture. I was trying to be gentle. <laughs> but but you're told that these are your brothers, right, or your brothers and your sisters. These are the people who are going to protect you. Um, you, you want to make sure that you are taking care of your left and your right. But then we move forward, and it's like, oh, but there were things that happened you lost even if you weren't in combat if you lost somebody to combat if there you know training accidents happen all the time we we place almost no importance on those types of things either we look at were you deployed okay if you were deployed then maybe your trauma's valid um if if you were hurt, then okay, yeah, your trauma is really valid. But all of those other peripheral issues that come with being a military member, we almost always disregard. If you didn't experience it directly, then it wasn't really an experience, and that's not how it works. So knowing that, understanding that, and allowing people to honor that is is vital, but it's also, again, very complex because in the process of honoring that, you also want to make sure that you're bringing along and addressing the negative things that happen too. And and veterans are stubborn. I don't know if you know this, right? <laughs> I, if I don't, I'm certain my wife does. That's that's true. <laughs> They're terribly stubborn, and so and so it's it takes a lot of patience, and I think it takes a lot of compassion and understanding to actually let them get to that place in their own time. And I think some of it is helping them understand that these things are unique as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know, and we talked briefly about Cold War veterans, so veterans that served between the mid-70s until the early 90s, about that 16 to 18 year period. They themselves may think that my service was not as significant. Um, but uh, I, I did some research one time. There were more active duty military deaths in 1981 than there was in 2010. And we had two wars in 2010, but we didn't have safety 
officers in 1981, <laughs> right? There wasn't there wasn't people making sure that all the weapons were pointing in the right direction. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing that goes back to that need for people to understand the military mm-hmm. and not just pass somebody off because they, they were in Germany in the mid-'80s. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, um, my father never served in Vietnam, and I happen to think, and I say it all the time, you know, that we were very lucky and blessed that he didn't. Um, But he sees it in an entirely different way, right? Because he should have been able to go over there. He should have been able to to do what he was trained to do. And and there are individuals, I've worked with veterans who have had that same experience because for whatever reason, they weren't able to deploy with their units or they missed movement because they were having some trauma from something else happening based on their military experience. And so there are all those other things and getting them past some of the shame and embarrassment that for some reason goes along with not going to war for a military member is a unique task in and of itself, but then also getting them to the point where they can um, really understand how that may have impacted them is an entirely different beast, too, because they're willing to say things like, you know, I should have been with my unit. I, I should have done this, or, or if I had done this, then I would have. But what they're also not understanding is that for whatever reason, that then has made them feel less than. Mm-hmm. And I think there's lessons that we can learn um, from our older veterans, obviously, um, that can be applied today. I, I think of, I've worked with veterans that served in the mid-90s. They said they joined the Marine Corps and peace broke out, right, after the <laughs> Gulf War. And, and they were like, um, but the same thing's mm-hmm. going to happen to people that are joining next month, mm-hmm. right? And, and we're winding down the global war on terror. And so there's going to be multi-generations of combat veterans who now we have somebody who may have decided to join a little bit later. And so I think that these things happen in cycles. And the work that you're doing with older veterans can help inform us as we're addressing addressing this today's mm-hmm. veterans when they get to that age. That would be the hope, right? That we can always do better um, for people in general, but especially for our veterans. I mean, think about think about what happened with the service members who came back from Vietnam and how they were treated and disregarded by society, right? We learned from that and we did better as as other combats combat situations came up and people deployed and we treated them better and with more respect. But I also think that there's this huge disconnect between a thank you for your service and an understanding of what that service means. And if we can um, start some of the work now and maybe build on it and continue to grow our knowledge and our ability to provide resources to that particular demographic, I think we're going to be doing wonderful things for military members in the future. And that really is one of my my biggest goals, is just making sure that, that people understand that there are going to be resources available for them, that they can get some assistance, that this isn't a shameful thing to admit that you need some help and to maybe... Um, help inform the next generation of therapists too as to how to help veterans as they continue to age. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And and as you've talked about, mental health doesn't just happen in a vacuum, right? We're not just depressed. Mm -hmm. We're also dealing with these other things. Um, What can you tell us about some of 
Silver Key's other initiatives. I mean, you've mentioned mm-hmm. some, the Meals on Wheels, um, but other things that Silver Key does that can help support veterans and their family members as they age. So we have a ton of initiatives that are going on right now. Um, I know you and I have talked about one of our collaborations with uh CSFD CARES program and um, innovations in aging and NAMI and that's hopefully being able to provide mental health first aid um, specific to older adults in the to the community so we have that initiative that that's going on um, I like to remind people that when we're talking about the community the community of Colorado Springs or El Paso County um, one of the biggest populations in our community is our veteran population. And so all of the things that we do hopefully are informed toward veterans and can can help in that regard. Um, talked about the VETS program and the companionship programs like Reassurance Plus. We always have the ability to um, coordinate with the VA for services if there's a need there. Um, Again, our goal is to make sure that people who are food insecure, veteran or not, are getting the the commodities that they need. That if they need some other additional things, we have a thrift store. And so we can help with vouchers so that if somebody, a homeless vet, which has happened before, needs a winter coat because winters in Colorado Springs are not kind, then we can help them get those types of things. We have our Meals on Wheels programs, so individuals have that nice home-cooked meal that comes delivered to them. And and actually, I think we do a lot of coordination with um, the military bases to help deliver some of those meals in the community. So it's just every resource that we have at Silver Key, we can put to work for a military member, for their family member, for a veteran. Um, and we are always excited to explain our programs to people and see where we can get them involved. I think Silver Key definitely has a very, very good reputation in the community. Um, we see the buses, right? You <laughs> see, I mean, that's the big thing. It's they're almost like mobile billboards. Um, but people don't, they see that and they think, well, Silver Key is maybe just a transportation thing. But there's so many different um, programs that Silver Key has. Absolutely. Um, and and they're continuing to grow. Um the you know COVID-19 was a horrible thing some of the benefits of that though is that there's been a lot of funding that's been provided so that we can continue to grow and enhance our programs for people if you call Silver Key you can get connected to transportation the food pantry um, calls of reassurance which is a wonderful thing so you can get a loved one or yourself put on a list so that you receive calls throughout the week from a staff member or a volunteer just checking on you. How are you doing? How's everything going? How did that doctor's appointment go last week? Um, because it's about that human connection. So all of those different programs are meant to help people feel more connected to the community, community and less disengaged, especially during these periods of isolation. Hopefully we can we can just be a little bit of a of a hope and a ray of light for people. But once you're in our system, we're going to keep we're going to keep track. We're going to keep trying to figure out where we can help, what we can do to aid you in whatever needs you have. And really just trying to make sure that people know we exist and we're more than Meals on Wheels or transportation, because that's 
I'm from Gentalia. I grew up in this community, and I thought of Silver Key as Meals on Wheels. And um, once I started working with the organization, discovered we are a lot more than that and can do so many more things. I like that calls of reassurance. Is there a program where moms can sign up to have their sons call them <laughs> on periodic? Because I'm sure my mom would sign up on that, right? I mean, and that's really the thing. That might be the next level. The next level. <laughs> but, um, but so if people wanted to find out more about mm-hmm. what Silver Key does or connect to some of these services, how can they do that? So the best way is to call our information line, which we call the Silver Line, and that is 719-884-2300. Uh, um, the staff and volunteers who answer that line, will, they're trained so that they can kind of do a quick assessment. Somebody might call up and say, I need transportation um, to get to the grocery store because I can finally afford to go buy groceries. Our staff is trained to go, oh, wait, maybe you need to connect to commodities too. Maybe we can help you with a monthly food delivery so that you um, have that to kind of buffer you when your retirement income isn't providing enough. So they're trained to help guide and filter through, connect with other community agencies if there are additional needs. And um, they're really good at at just making enough of a connection so people feel heard. And, and I was going to bring that up, that idea of it's not just a standalone agency. That's one thing I've always valued mm-hmm. about Silver Key is you're also connected to the Pikes Peak Area Center on Aging. You're also connected to the Independence Center yes. um, to be able to, um, one, be able to refer to them or that mm-hmm. they would be able to refer to Silver Key. Absolutely. Um, we refer to and work with Pace, um, Mount Carmel. It, it just depends on what the individual needs when they walk through our door and we will we will look for it if we don't know it we will we will try to find it and sometimes not having a resource in the community um, has been a reason for us to look internally and go is this something that we can help provide is this something we should be adding to our programs we have so many great community programs and if we don't all stay connected with each other then we're doing the entire county a disservice Absolutely. And I thank you for coming on the show today to talk to us about Silver Key and Behavioral Health Services. And thank you for what you're doing for our older veterans. Thank you for letting me come on. It was really a pleasure. I hope that you appreciated my conversation with Layla. For this week's Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week, I'd like to share a bit about the Resource Exchange, an organization that partners with children and adults who have a variety of disabilities, delays, mental health, or long-term care needs. During the pursuit of civil rights and the tumultuous days of the 1960s, a dedicated group of parents and professionals wanted independence and inclusion for their children with disabilities. The Resource Exchange was founded in 1964 in Colorado Springs by those passionate families who simply wanted their children to be treated fairly and included as valued members of the community. The Resource Exchange, or TRE, had four employees back then. Today, TRE has approximately 400 employees and serves approximately 9,000 infants, children, teens, adults, and seniors throughout El Paso, Pueblo, Park, and Teller counties. TRE has relationships with over 200 community partners to which they refer families. TRE's commitment over the last 57 years has not wavered. The Resource Exchange partners with children and adults who have a variety of disabilities, delays, mental health, and long-term care needs. TRE uses a person-centered approach in coordinating care, promoting choices, and collaborating with community partners. TRE is one of 20 community-centered boards in Colorado. 
As a community-centered board, TRE is responsible to determine eligibility, provide comprehensive case management, and provide or purchase services and supports for the people they served. Community-centered boards, or CCBs, continue to lead the nation in supporting the independence, productivity, and integration of the people they serve. CCBs will help people exercise their rights to live, learn, play, and work in their home communities with dignity, abundant choices, and opportunities and responsibilities accorded to all people. Above all, CCBs believe that all people have the inherent value and the right to exert control and responsibility over their own lives. TRE is also a single entry point for this region, meaning it administers all of Colorado's Medicaid waivers, making it easier for people to access waiver services in one place. A Medicaid waiver enables someone to receive long-term care and resources to live in the community they choose, helping provide services to someone who might otherwise be in a hospital, nursing facility, or institution. Medicaid funding in the form of a waiver is available and TRE can help determine if someone qualifies and if they do, how to enroll. For example, among the military community, TRE would be able to determine if someone qualifies for mental health assistance if they're experiencing PTSD, determine eligibility for a veteran who has a brain injury, help someone find services if they need long-term care, or assist a family who thinks that their child might be behind on developmental milestones. TRE has five areas of service, navigation and quality, service coordination, early intervention, family support services and break time programs, and long-term care services. Navigation and quality helps determine if someone qualifies for a Medicaid waiver or other services, helps them enroll, and connects them to resources in the community. This team assists with the delay and disability determination, intake and documentation, community resource referral, quality monitoring and review, and incident investigation. Service coordination, also known as case management, is a person-centered, family, and community-focused service to build relationships with the people TRE serves, working with them and their caregivers to coordinate and monitor services to ensure that their needs are being met. This team helps with enrollment services, individualized service plans, creating and monitoring paperwork completion and submission assistance, goal setting and strategy collaboration, problem solving and crisis management, and meeting or appointment attendance if needed. Early intervention through TRE provides supports and services to children from birth through three years old who may be just a bit behind reaching developmental milestones like crawling or speaking or children who have special developmental needs. TRE meets children's needs in their natural environment, typically at home, promoting learning in real life with the family's activities and routines. TRE is the only official Part C early intervention provider in El Paso Park and Teller counties, and the TRE early intervention is provided to families at no cost, regardless of income or insurance. Approximately one-third of the children TRE serves need no additional support after their third birthday. Last year, over 1,800 children received early intervention services. 265 children, parents and caregivers, received early childhood mental health supports. 88% of families who received TRE's early childhood mental health services or classes reported a reduction in family stress. Mental health concerns are considered the next wave of the coronavirus pandemic, and TRE is committed to supporting early childhood mental health efforts and the well-being of the entire family through evidence-based parenting classes at no cost to families. TRE's Go Baby Go event is particularly special and brings together families, therapists, and community volunteers who adapt miniature motorized cars for children who cannot walk unassisted. These cars are customized and incorporated into, child's, into the child's therapy plan. 
Build teams volunteer along with local supporters, and at the end of the event, there are smiles all around as the child takes a drive in their new accessible car, controlling their own movement for the first time. TRE's Family Support Services Program cares for the caregiver. Medicaid and private insurance does not cover all the costs experienced by many TRE families. Through Colorado General Funds and generous donors, this program provides funding for eligible families and last year provided items like gym memberships for respite, iPads or tablets for people to bridge the digital divide experienced by many with disabilities, weighted blankets for children with sensory needs, and help with home modifications. The program Break Time also fills a critical need for families with children who have severe developmental or physical disabilities. While the children are in the capable hands of professionals in one-on-one care, their parents and guardians enjoy a break or a date night for a few hours. Community groups and volunteers make these events a meaningful way to give back. For those seeking long-term home health, assisted living, or nursing facility services, TRE can also connect people to extended care services and support. TRE can also assist someone needing in-home services, such as certified nursing assistant, life alert, assistance with daily care, support with mental health needs connected to a traumatic brain injury, or someone needing a nursing facility level of care. TRE does not make placement decisions for anyone or their family, but can assist with available resources and determine if someone is financially eligible for Medicaid-approved assistance. From individual donations or corporate gifts and partnerships to building motorized care for children with mobility issues, there are a variety of meaningful ways to support TRE's work in the community. Call 719-380-1100 or go to www.tre.org for more information about how the Resource Exchange can help you or about how you can make a difference in the lives of the people they served. So thanks for taking the time to listen to the show. It'd be great to hear your feedback. I'd like to answer any questions you might have or know what you would like to hear about. What topics about military and veteran mental health are you interested in? Send me an email to militarymind at FCCSprings.com and there's a chance that we'll discuss it on an upcoming show. I'd also like to remind you that the information provided on this show is for informational purposes only. While I am a licensed mental health professional, I'm not your licensed mental health professional. If what we discussed on this episode brings up any concerns for you, it's highly recommended that you consult with a licensed mental health professional. Stay tuned for another great show next week. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever. Family Care Center is a comprehensive outpatient behavioral health clinic providing critical mental health support to service members, veterans, family members, and our local community. Family Care Center focuses on the mental health and wellness of those who have served our country's military by providing best in-class evidence-based therapy, medication management, and transcranial magnetic stimulation. Family Care Center's clinical staff is dedicated to meeting every client's outpatient behavioral health care needs. This is Dr. Chuck Weber inviting you to to learn more at fcsprings.com. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. You've been listening to Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families. Sponsored by Family Care Center, Behavioral Health Services. Our family caring for your family. FCSprings.com. Tune in every Saturday at 11 a.m. for Inside the Military Mind on KPPF. And listen to the Companion Podcast on Podbean. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? 
then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.